Just a small content warning about this episode. It deals with topics of sexuality, and there is a little bit of salty language towards the end. Welcome to Undiscarded Stories of New York, a podcast brought to you by the City Reliquary Museum and Civic Organization in Brooklyn. Our guest on today's episode is Maggie McMuffin, a multifaceted star in the New York burlesque scene and current reigning Miss Coney Island. Being Miss Coney Island means different things for everyone. Um, Ultimately, even competing in the pageant makes you part of Coney's history and neo-burlesque history. For me personally, being Miss Coney Island means representing Coney Island, really letting people know what it is, all the wonderful things that it does, and also getting to be part of the wonderful crew of people, the dedicated, passionate people who are out there. I get to say that I'm their queen, which is silly because I would be nothing without them. And Maggie is the perfect expert for this episode's artifact. She's here at the City Reliquary Museum today to speak about a sort of hidden shrine that's tucked in the corner of the main exhibit space. It's an old abandoned police locker, and it's flanked on both sides by all sorts of uh, reliquary memorabilia, chunks of buildings, photos of the Williamsburg, but a bust of Teddy Roosevelt of all things. We're going to save that for another episode. Um, You can tell it's got some wear and tear in there. Um, But on the front, it's got an impressive wooden sign, dun, 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 saying a history of burlesque in New York. Why don't we open it? All right. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. That is decked out. (laughs) It is decked out. (laughs) So let's see what we have over here. We have this velvet interior, this little mini chandelier. Um, We have photos of our heroine on both sides, who's going to be our subject. And um, what do you think? Are those authentic Baroque era curtains in there? Oh, absolutely. Everything in burlesque is 100% accurate. We have it appraised. I know someone who works for Antiques Roadshow and he connects us with all sorts of vintage antique items. Definitely. Like those fake flowers that are like decorating this lovely bedecked. Those are 100% authentic, real fake flowers. All right. And so right in the center, I don't know if you can peek around and see. I know you're familiar with this exhibit. There. In the center is a carnival-style two-way mirror, and staring back at you is a flamboyantly dressed mannequin. This isn't just any mannequin. It's an homage to someone real and famous and featured in the many black and white photographs that adorn this display. This is a superstar of the turn of the 20th century, making her first splash at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, and then on the boardwalks of Coney Island. So who is she, and what are we looking at? We are looking at a depiction of Little Egypt. She is a big part of burlesque history. Uh, She is considered to be one of the first... Um, sort of steps towards burlesque in America because of her performing at the World's Fair, bearing her stomach, moving uh, in a very sensual way that rocked the boat. 
at least that it, that's the myth. That's the legend. That is the myth and the legend I hear. Um, it was quite shocking for that time. She originated the Hoochie Coochie dance. I wouldn't say that she originated it, but she did bring it into uh, the public consciousness, into the mainstream. And at that time, I think there was a bit of an obsession. Uh, I mean, people have been watching women shake their hips forever. But, um, you know, this was a time when there was more documentation. In the same way that now we have, everyone has a phone, people are documenting more. At that World's Fair, you had more people catching things on photo. So it wasn't just word of mouth. It was people were able to take these images and send them far, far away so that people could see and talk about these things that they hadn't actually experienced firsthand. And it's become embellished a lot in the way that most art history does. That originally she was not burying her stomach. If you look at that photograph, you can actually see, you can't see her belly button. You can't see like the muscles of her navel. It's more like kind of a nude covering. What was scandalous was the actual movement itself because the Little Egypt uh, dancer and also the other dancers, there were all sorts of these dancers um, in the section of the World's Fair that was called like Little Cairo and you could get books and go and see them and there were a lot of them and they were belly dancing. It was just so provocative that these women were running around without corsets. I mean, don't they know that their uteruses might wander up into their hearts or something? I don't know. And God knows what's gonna happen when that happens. God (laughs) knows what happens. Hysteria, huh? (laughs) So, you know, obviously, like if you're talking to a modern person now, if you're just like, oh, she just wasn't wearing a corset, a lot of people don't have the historical context for why that was so brazen. And the reason why they were able to get away with it is because it was foreign and exotic. That was kind of the purpose of the World Fair, right? Like this sort of exotic place where you could experience all these different cultures. If you just had like, a fine, upstanding white woman, a pillar of society, dancing like that, it would be a huge scandal. But this way, people were kind of free to be like, oh, yes, yes, we're learning about these other cultures. We're becoming learned. It's (laughs) educational. Um, Which is why a lot of the women who performed that attraction were often Persian. There were a lot of light-skinned black women who were doing it, which was frequently how they were hired as ethnic dancers, very heavy air quotes. And that's where we get the root of exotic dancer is because it was exotic, it's foreign, it's look at this, look at how they do it in this other country that's not here and not England. American women would never do that. American (laughs) women would never do that. Don't talk to those women, don't believe their American accents. Those are phony. These are foreign strangers to us. So from what I know, um, Little Egypt, obviously, you know, she debuted in Chicago at the World's Fair, but it kind of really took on a life of its own when it came to New York City and on like the boardwalk of Coney Island. The history of Little Egypt is really interesting because it's hard to say that there was one Little Egypt, that there was one specific woman who was Little Egypt. I spoke to Darby Fox, who is one of the um, head people at the Burlesque Hall of Fame Museum in Las Vegas. And she likened it to saying, oh, this one person is Cinderella at Disneyland. And it's like, no, there's Cinderella at Disneyland. And when you go and see her, yeah, is that a different person? No, it's not. It's always Cinderella. (laughs) 
Little Egypt was kind of that. There are a couple of people who might have been like the person in the photograph, in the famous photographs. But Coney Island, once the attraction moved there, it became the Little Egypt attraction. There were other people who were filling in that role, who were dancing that dance. Yeah, one of them, I think, one of the little Egypts, I think she was found asphyxiated in her apartment, but she had amassed a massive fortune. She also claims to be like the original little Egypt. A a lot of people claim, because you could make those claims (laughs) way back when. Um, You could claim that you invented something. I mean, you could also just run off into the night with someone's money and never be seen again. That is one thing I envy about the past. You could just constantly reinvent yourself and talk yourself up. There's no proper documentation. (laughs) There is no proper documentation. Um, We do have some documentation that one of the women who was like the original Little Egypt, like the most likely to have been, you know, she she was called Little Egypt not because she was small, but because she was very, very thick. She was referred to as a small continent. And so it wasn't, oh yeah, she, she, her name's Egypt and she's tiny. It's no, she is a, just a smaller version of the country. Oh, that's hysterical. I did not know that. <laughs> and yeah, I love that because there's also a lot of erasure in history of different marginalized identities and bodies in all history, but also in burlesque history. There's a lot of people who are doing the work to uncover the contributions of people who, you know, didn't look like Sally Rand and Tempest Storm and Gypsy Rose Lee. And there is just so much. And I think that that's important because we have so many people who are still striving to see themselves in burlesque and media now. It's important to note that those people have always been here and always laying the groundwork. What do you think it was like for a performer in that time, a burlesque performer, say you were one of the many little Egypts? Like, how do you think her life was different than yours right now? For one, I I don't know a lot about how much performers in Coney Island were making in like the 1910s. I can't imagine it was a wild amount. Um, but, you know, thinking back to New York in the long, long ago, I'm sure that we both lived in tiny apartments with landlords that we didn't like. And we're just, you know, hustling and bustling, trying to get by. Coney Island was also called Sodom by the Sea because it was a lower economically sound neighborhood. It was the beach where poor people went, where the working class really went. And in that way, I do feel that I'm upholding a history. I am from a poor background. I'm from a working class background. I have been in the service industry and the sex industry my entire adult life. And Coney is a place where that is honored in a way that I feel like a lot of places don't. Um, A lot of theaters are very boots on the ground. Everyone has to pitch in. And Coney really is a place where everyone is there because they want to be there and they really care about this. And no one is making enough money to make it worth it. But there are other things that make it worth it. The the camaraderie, the community, um, getting to know more about the history, getting to just be in that historic space. And, you know, it's hard to beat a workplace where at the end of the day, you can just like walk 20 feet and be in the ocean. Is it still the Sodom by the sea? I I don't think that we can ever truly capture the spirit of what was happening back then. The world is very different, but 
it's still wild. It is still amazing all of the things that you can just stumble upon there. I have seen people being Spider-Man on the light poles. I have seen, I met a man who was like, I had 10 tabs of acid three hours ago. I think I've reached enlightenment. I wasn't intending to get here. I started in Harlem. He was having a great time. You can buy turtles. I, there's a iguana that just kind of wanders around in the summer. I don't know where it is right now. I hope it is safe and warm. And of course, you still have the Coney Island Circus Sideshow, which is the last remaining sideshow of Coney, but in ye olden days, you know, 100 years ago or so, there were sideshows like every single, like three feet. You would just run into someone else who had an attraction and they were constantly trying to one-up each other. They were always trying to bring in something new and exciting and flashy so that they could get the audience, they could get that money. And it was just crazy, it was wild. Um, and the same with the amusement parks. The amusement parks were also constantly trying to one-up each other. Yeah, I'd love to have a time machine to go back to that time specifically. I cannot imagine just the the feast that people walking around on their days off, it's like, oh, I've got 75 cents, what am I gonna do with it? It's like, oh, you have so many options. Back then you had vaudeville theaters, burlesque theaters, comedy theaters, and while there was overlap, frequently burlesque shows were not just burlesque dancers. You would have a comedian hosting and, and doing some sort of comedic set. You would have people coming out and singing songs, especially in vaudeville. Uh, frequently burlesque dancers were also in the early days doing something else they were doing, like the exotic dance, the educational excuse, or they were also singing, they were reading poetry. There would be women who would like perform a tableau and because they weren't moving, it was like, oh, it, it's like art. It's the movement that's the <laughs> devil, but if they're still, it's fine. These, these breasts are sacred. <laughs> when you think back on little Egypt, is there like a direct line from her to where you are now? I never thought of it that way. Um, I don't know. I, I honestly feel, I honestly feel really um, kind of uncomfortable seeing if there's a direct line between like a woman of color from a past that I'll never experience to me, a still like fairly straight sized white girl. Um, because I just know that our, our life experiences around our art would have been so drastically different. And while I do believe to some extent separating the art from the artist, I feel like when it comes to those identities, I can't really do that. And so I would say that I owe Little Egypt. I owe whoever the original was. I owe all of those hoochie coochie dancers in the past. You know, they really helped set up the world for me to explore and to thrive in. And I'll always be grateful to them, but I, I don't know if that is, that is the past that is correct for me to claim. And the term exotic dancing itself is up for discussion now. A lot of people are wanting to kind of push it out, find something else to say, because the use of it is rooted in exoticism and racism and othering different cultures. But there are also still women alive who fought very hard to be called exotic dancers, to have that be like a title that gained more respect than a stripper or a hoochie-coochie dancer. And, you know, it's an, it's an ongoing thing to find the balance of honoring the people who at the time, that was the best term that they had versus people now who can still be hurt by that term. Why do we need to have this? 
in a museum. Oh my God. There is so much sanitization of history. People forget the working class. People forget queer people. They forget people of color. There is so many voices in history that are forgotten. And as someone who has been a sex worker for coming up on half my life, it does bring me joy whenever I go into a museum and see sex work or work that was risque and maybe doesn't neatly fall into that line, but was stigmatized in a similar way to see it represented because, you know, history is a result of sex. Everyone who's been a part of history happened because two people fucked. I mean, we still have so much stigma against I mean, art in general, but especially art that involves sexuality and incorporates sexuality and is based around sexuality. And if you have anything that's kind of outside of the norm and removing any sort of recreational sex from that, um, especially when, you know, a lot of times during sexual revolutions, there's a lot happening uh, culturally. There's revolutions in other ways. And it just makes me feel like it's a space where I can be welcome and I can bring myself fully and also therefore share it with other people in my communities that I love and care about. How did you feel when you walked into the reliquary and you saw this? I really enjoyed it. I, my very first time in the reliquary was before I was producing here, or performed here. I came for a Halloween show that Emily and Charlotte Siobhan were doing. And my, my friend and co-producer, Venetrix, was actually in the little Egypt box. She was behind the mirror with the mannequin. And so my first experience going into the locker was opening and being like, oh, there's all this stuff. There's photos, there's postcards. This is so lush. Oh, there's a button I can push. And I pushed it and it lit up because it doesn't always work. Very often little Egypt will not want to see her public. And it lit up and it was the mannequin, but it was also Venetrix, who is a currently working burlesque performer, just like play acting with the mannequin and kind of acting like whoever came to the mirror, like had interrupted this very private conversation and how dare you. Um, and it was, it was such a good introduction to the reliquary. And I was like, oh, I like this place. And I think that they'll like us too. Like the city reliquary is a museum for New York. It is not a museum for rich tourists. It is a place for New Yorkers to come and see themselves and see real on the ground history. This has been Undiscarded, Stories of New York, a podcast brought to you by the City Reliquary Museum and Civic Organization in Brooklyn, New York, in partnership with Citizen Racecar. My name is Tanya Muhammad, and I produce this show in collaboration with David Hoffman, who edits the stories. Post-production and original music by Jose Miguel Baez. Contributing producer, Jacob Ford. Production manager, Gabriela Montequin. Outreach manager, Sarah Shalantano. And a special thanks to Dave Herman. To learn more about these artifacts, check out undiscarded.org. And be sure to follow at City Reliquary on Instagram for facts and pictures. Head to cityreliquary.org to hear all about the museum's mission, exhibits, and events. If you enjoyed this episode of Undiscarded, 
Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and help spread the word. There are so many more stories to tell.